Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 120. This interview is with Steve Grout, CEO of Tangent Snowball, a digital agency with some 115 employees specialized in connecting data, technology, and creativity with strategy. Tangent Snowball is a subsidiary of Tangent Communications PLC based in the UK. And in this interview, Steve and I discuss a wide range of topics around digital marketing for brands, with a particular focus on digital marketing for luxury brands, where Steve has experience working with luxury brands such as Mentley, Jaguar, Dunhill, and Bang & Olufsen. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue Internet Show, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, author of TheMindset.com, that's T-H-E-M-Y-N-D-S-E-T, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes on the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to the quick. Enjoy the show. So, Steve, uh, great to have you on the show. Tell us uh, who you are and what you do. Hi, uh, my name is Steve Grout. I'm CEO at Tangent Snowball. Um, I've spent most of my career working for some uh, leading agencies, um, agencies such as Wonderman, Radcoins, and DDB, working both in the UK and globally. All right. So, you know, the agency world, it's a world, I mean, we, you're dealing with companies that are being turned upside down, but would it be fair to say that agency world has been turned upside down quite a lot as well? Uh, it's funny enough, a question asks a lot about whether we're, we're challenged by change more than ever. Um, I, I perhaps have a slightly different view, uh, having been around the agency world for 20 plus years, is that actually I think there's always been change. And actually, it's the great agencies and the great people that actually react to change um, and through that actually exist and, and become greater agencies. So I think, yes, I agree with you. There's a lot of change now, particularly around the digital space and data. But to be honest, it's just different change than we had before, I think. You know, I, I think that's my, my answer to it anyway. Well, um, so when when one's, one's forming and, and running an agency, at, at a certain level, just like a consultancy, the the, the trick or the, the the challenge might be is is figuring out what is your space and what is your point of difference. Yeah. Because uh, you know, if you're going in to do a communication plan today, this notion of integrated communications means you need to be doing events and you need to be doing social and mobile and so on and so forth. And, and then that means that you have to be good at managing all the different spheres and, and specialists in your team. How do you guys handle that at Tangent? Sorry, I can't keep saying again. It's no worries. You there. All right. How do you guys manage that at Tangent Snowball? How do we manage it? Well, I think we, we like most agents, that have a, uh, a pretty straightforward process. But I guess one of the things about us, which we aim for, is we try to talk to our clients to understand their business issue and the business challenge. And then we come up with a business solution. And then what we have is a quite simple process. Most agencies have a process. We call it the three I's. It's about insight, innovation, and influence. So insight is about understanding what the issue is and using desk research or hard or soft data or whatever it is we have to use to get to possible. Innovation is about how do we find a way to crack the issue which makes a difference, and you're right, there's so much going on with consumers right now that unless you innovate in some way, whether through the channel you use, uh, the medium you use, the creative message, you just won't get engagement. 
And then we talk about influence, which is there's no point doing this great work unless you actually get people to think differently, to act differently, to purchase differently, to recommend differently, and also measure it. So we also always me measure the influence. So that's the way we do it, by the three eyes. It's quite a simple process. I know lots of other agencies have their approaches. That's the tangent stable way. All right, so if you're, we're getting you in with a company, uh, what is the scope of service that you're providing? I mean, because, you know, television ads down to uh, the, the, you know, a mobile ad, what, what, is, yeah. what is your, so the scope of service? The cool area around us is the heartland is what we call business technology. Um, and so we define, you know, there's probably two different types of technology. Information technology, which we see as back office. Business technology, which we see as that technology which helps uh, a brand uh, attract a consumer, uh, retain a consumer, or serve a consumer. So it could be any technology that goes around that. So it could be from a website, from a database, from creating uh, digital advertising, banners, apps, social media, anything that goes around that. That's our core of our business, probably about 70 or 80%. Outside of that is going out into more traditional channels such as direct mail, leafleting, press advertising, and a little bit of TV, but that's not really our heartland. We would work alongside a partner to do that type mm. of work. But we see anything that has technology as kind of touching it and connecting it. So it's about customer engagement, consumer engagement through, through use of technology. All right, so uh, in the world of insights, uh, I think that's a, a sort of a fascinating zone because it's, I would say it's a, it's, it's not a broadly well understood area. I would, that's in my experience working with, within companies. How, how do you, how, how do you go about creating, crafting a great insight? And, and to what extent do you really need the, your client to be a partner in the, in the understanding of the insights? Yeah, I think very much so. We have to be very uh, much in partnership with the client. It's not what we hate is is, is the client just hand us over documents or some files by email and say go you know go fix. It's much more an iterative process where we we would hope to sit down with the client and go through the data they have, whether it's sales data, transactional data. Um, it could be stake, stakeholder interviews at the client to really get under the skin, get under the bonnet of the issue, understand the environmental issues, the, the wider issues at the time. And then outside of that, going into desk research or, or groups or focus and, and going back and working through different hypotheses with the client at brand manager level or marketing director level. Uh, and quite often we might go away and come up with two or three different approaches or insights um, but actually, somehow, the conversation with the client and getting a different feel for it. And they might say, well, actually, you're kind of technically right there, guys, but you've got to understand that this was also going on at this point. And sometimes, it's only sitting with the client and understanding that that you really get the true insight. Mm -hmm. There might be something else going on with the brand or the consumer at that time that you can't always just tell by having, you know, some uh, some data guys or some strategists sitting there in a room. So absolutely agree with you. It is a kind of two-way thing. It's very collaborative. Mm. So, um, Steve, I know that at, at uh, Tangent you have a number of great clients and uh, standout ones that, for me, I love in the luxury space, Dunhill and, and uh, Bang & Olufsen. When you're dealing with luxury companies like those and others maybe you can talk about in the past – as opposed to lower level 
or you know more mass brands how is the work different because a luxury customer is a little bit more sensitive to their data and so on and so forth so what, what, how do you tackle that well, I think you're right. I mean, there are some things where I say there's some similarities in terms of process, but I think you're right. What you do have to have to really think about is, you know, the value of these customers, these super high value uh, customers to your brands. Um, so you have to treat them carefully, I guess. Um, and that's one of the things. Uh, for a start, we're not dealing with so many people. You know, if you're if you're looking at fast moving, you know, FMCG, you're talking about segments of. 100,000, a million people, great big segments, and sometimes in space technology and what we can do, you're having to, you can't customise at a very one-to-one level, just, you know, because of the economics, because of the practicalities, but with the super high-end uh, brands that we deal with, you very much are dealing at one-to-one, you know, I've, I've been dealing with, you know, airlines and car brands, and airlines are first-class ticket, maybe £10,000. Dealing with um, an upmarket car brand, you're, you're selling a car worth 100,000, 150,000, 200,000 pound car, where the relationship is a very individual one. That customer expects a one to one relationship. And indeed, when they're going into a store, into a, into a car dealership, or into a first class lounge or VIP lounge at an airport, they expect a one to one relationship. They expect to be recognised. Uh, they expect to be appreciated, uh, and they expect a lot of service, which is different. So the expectation is very different from that customer. Uh, and we have to help the brand understand that and then work out how to deal with the customer at the different touch points. And I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges, actually, is how you get the brand to appreciate the different touch points, connect them, and deal with the customer at each stage appropriately. Yeah, I mean, connected way. Right. In, in essence, I mean, the challenge as an agency is you're providing some kind of communication or some uh, assets that they're going to deploy, and they're going to send out a message. But your challenge is the execution at the front line, yeah. because you you might have these different touch points with human interface yeah. that are actually going to be carrying out with white gloves that yeah. service that you've been promoting in your communication. And so, how how do you manage that when you're dealing with uh, these high end customers or well, high end clients? Right. It's um, it's I think some of it's about organisation uh, and some of it about employee marketing. So when I worked uh, worked with Bentley uh, for a couple of years, and our challenge there was to create for for certain launches materials, communication programs, which we went, uh, which we had to manage via the website and the user experience there. Uh, through to the communications, and that was very much working with the dealers. So we worked with those dealers for them to identify the prospects that we would communicate with, and either that communication went directly from the brand, and in some cases went directly from the dealership and the sales guy. So then we had to have a, a, an education program for the for the sales guys and the dealership guys to understand what the new car was about, what the brand values were, and how they would communicate that to the actual end user. Uh, and so that was a very um, organized program of making sure that the different levels of engagement were consistent, um, that if someone walked into a dealership in Shanghai or London to see that car, they had a very similar experience. 
Uh, now we could help around the communication materials and the, the assets within the showroom, the assets on the website, what was sent by email. But we had to work with the with the with Bentley to make sure that they trained the guys and make sure that was consistent. That's the point that we don't always aim as as an agency is that training element. But we can work alongside the brand to make sure that the brand values and the communication are consistent at least. But you're right, you're absolutely right. You know, you only need one rank sales guy somewhere and suddenly that whole brand experience can be, you know, can be ruined. That's brilliant. So actually, so you get involved in the internal communications down the pipe. Yeah. Yeah, we've we've often worked with, with, uh, yeah, some of it is around creating the assets that they use and, you know, sending those to them and making sure they understand how to use them and at what time. So there's literally a program for them to know which week, which day to send out. But also I've worked where we've actually gone out to dealerships or a regional program where we actually brief those end people. So whether they're whether the sales guys at the car dealership, whether they're some of the sales people at high-end luxury retailers, you know, where you actually launch them what the program is, what the campaign is, what the ad is, the TV ad, what the website looks like. And you get them involved. Uh, and some of it is about education, some of it is training, and some of it is about incentivization. You know, you can you can incentivize them, and you can do that then by carrot or stick. Either you know by mystery shopping. You know, I've worked with car dealerships in the past where you know if they don't put certain assets on their local website or in the showroom, we have mystery shoppers going around and actually kind of marking them down. Equally, there's a there's a bonus program. So if the feedback is that that, that dealership or retail looks absolutely fantastic and is totally on brand, then then they get a bonus. So, you know, we work with the brand in different ways to help do that. So when we're working with, with dealerships or, or retailers, you know, that we don't own necessarily, um, that there's a whole other layer of a relationship and management of the messaging. Yeah. To, you know, when you're working with luxury brands, something we don't often talk or use as a word is open, as in open the kimono and open and, and share all sorts of data. Do you have any examples of brands that have have uh, been a bit more, I would say, evolved in their approach to be more open, taking feedback from the field, from the dealership floor, and integrating that? Yeah, very much so. And I think um, I, I take the, the car business particularly as that. And what we've seen there, and you know, you'll know from working luxury yourself, is that different uh, countries react to luxury brands quite differently. You know, and the way people show their wealth. Sure. And so in some markets, you know, for instance, in China, I've seen in the car market, yeah, they want to customize their cars to stand out. You know, they're, they're very much, they're, it's a sign of their wealth and their affluence. You know, if you're a, if you're a you know, a 25-year-old multimillionaire in China, the first thing you go and do is buy a standout car and, and race around Shanghai in it. That can be quite different to parts of Europe, where actually, if you you know created high wealth for yourself, actually you want to be very discreet about it. So you might go out and buy a luxury car, but you might just stick it in your garage and you show your friends. I mean, literally, you know, and you just drive around and go to the shops in it. You then race up and down the high streets in it. And so, you know, I've worked with brands where you very much had the sales guys talk about that because. They understand about how to talk about the elements and how to sell the car. So in China, it's about you know getting the, the young you know software multi-millionaire to buy a bright pink car and you know add all the the 
special rules and all the rest of it to it. In Germany or France, it might be totally opposite. Right. So, so actually, we get the feedback from those guys in the field about how we communicate the values and the different ways of selling it. So, um, you know, in, in essence, when in luxury, we're often talking about the, the hand-holding and, the, and the, the high human contact point. How do you see digital being used effectively with luxury brands when you talk about building insights and building customer relationship managements? You know, and, and what makes that luxury? I think, um, I think some of it is some of the very basic. I mean, it's, it's kind of obvious, but look and feel. I mean, it has to actually look from the first time you hit that home page as if it's a quality product in terms of look design. So we have to be very careful about not just, you know, understanding the brand and brand values, but, but giving, giving it a quality feel. It's kind of obvious, but you really have to do that. You have to then do that right through the user experience so that it's a very personal experience. Again, you know, going back to what I said earlier, people expect a one-to-one -one experience. So when you can on these websites, you need to be able to do that. And so often I've worked with, you have to have two levels because, you know, a lot of people like to hit luxury websites because they just like to go and look at nice products. That doesn't mean to say they're the people that are going to buy it. And so... You know, I've been involved with brands where you'll have, you know, you'll have the wall, what we call the walled garden. You know, so you'll have the the website that's open to everyone, but you might offer either to a customer or a high-end prospect either a different level within that existing website, or actually have a different website totally, where only those guys can go and view. And those people might have benefits or information that other people can't get. You know, so I've worked with car brands where, you know. They have a walled garden where certain people with a with a, and an access code might on a you know on a Tuesday at twelve o'clock be able to go into a webinar and hear the designer of the car just talk to those people on a very personal basis about what drove him to try, you know design the car and the way he designed it the way the the engine was built what makes that engine built differently or you know the wood you know where the wood comes from or the leather all those personal aspects. And have a one-to-one -one conversation with those people, but we, we kept that only for the customers or top-end prospects, and those might be the people that the, the dealers have recommended or the actual customers. For, for the for the normal people, you know, the way below they can still go and see the website, and it can be very aspirational, but actually they don't get the other personal experience. So I, I want to get back. I want to get to the wall garden in a second, but just dealing with the user experience and the user interface. The, the challenge that I see in working with some top brands is that the competition actually is set not by other luxury companies, but the basics, as in the Amazons of the world. And so how do you render your user experience a luxury when it's already not bad on Amazon or not bad on Net-A-Porter? Yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, people are buying, you know, they're downloading stuff from Amazon every day. So they just expect a level of personalization, a level of recognition, a level of just things working. You know, that, that's the benchmark. You know, it's just like, it's just got to do that or you guys don't know what you're doing. So I totally agree. The benchmark comes from those, those experiences from Apple, from Amazon, those types of things. And then you've got to lay on top this other kind of experience. And that's where... You know, I say we moved someone to the walled garden because what you don't want to do as a luxury brand is spend a lot of time and effort, money, frankly, 
I'm the kind of guy, you know, you've got a lot of school kids and students looking at high-end websites because, you know, that's what they like to do. Now, we don't want to, we don't want to turn those guys away because who knows, in three years, five years, ten times, they might be the guys who are buying our products, you know. So you don't want to, you know, you don't want to turn them away, but you want to have a couple of different levels of dealing with those people. Um, and, you know, again, it's quite interesting, you know, I've worked with a lot of few brands where they, you know, set up the newsletter. And you look at the people actually receiving those newsletters when you've asked for any data or anything, those are not people who are actually buying those products and brands. Now, having said all that, they might be applicants, you know. Um, one of, some of the brands, I think, you do it quite nicely in a slightly different way. I've seen it in, for instance, some of the, the, the car brands that go racing. You know, look at what Ferrari does, what McLaren does, and so like Now, those, a lot of people that sign up for those newsletters will never ever buy McLaren or Ferrari. But do you know what? They do buy the Ferrari jackets <laughs> right. and the bags and the, you know, and the aftershave and the umbrellas. And so they can create a level of fandom. They're fans, really, mm-hmm. rather than purchasers. Uh, and there's a kind of level of brand advocates. It's interesting. You'll see people walking around with Ferrari T-shirts and umbrellas and bags and aftershave. They're advocates, they're out there on the brand, and it's an interesting discussion, and I think you might know perhaps better than I some of this, is how do you get, you know, because you want those guys to be advocates, but equally the people buying Ferraris don't associate with people walking around with a Ferrari umbrella. You right. Know, and that's, that, you know, but you don't want to turn those people away, and actually for some of those brands selling that merchandise, they're making a very good revenue stream, yeah. you know. And so you have to be very careful about that merchandise and how it reflects the brand. It can't be too cheap. <laughs> it can't be too expensive. Um, and that's an interesting challenge for many brands. I think. I think some brands in the past did it wrong because they sold licenses to their brands. And I know, you know, I, I worked many, many years ago with Jaguar when they'd sold, uh, some people had got hold of licenses and they were selling products that just weren't really of the quality appropriate for Jaguar, and I'm talking about 20 years ago, and they had to go through a lot of uh, cases to stop those guys selling that stuff. Alright, so when you're dealing, we're just taking, sticking on the user interface, you're dealing with a, a brand that's got beautiful imageries, beautiful products, which they always want to have look perfect, yeah. and and yet, uh, you know, maybe 50% of the traffic now is on the smartphone. When you're dealing with the customer, your clients, how do you get them to, well, how do you render that beautiful working site that stays beautiful and represents their brand in the right way? Well, I guess it's, I mean, great designers that understand it and great technology people. Our technology people are always working in smart ways to, to make it look good, to, to make sure it's optimized and whatever, whether it's a tablet, whether it's a phone, whether, you know, whatever the link, whether it's a smart watch now, whatever it's going to be. We've got to find a way to do that, and I think that is a challenge. You know, multiple browsers, you've got all sorts of things going on. To be frank, it's not always easy, and, right. it's, and it's costly, and it's costly as well because you know you have to keep ahead of the game. And I think that's a challenge when sometimes you've got quite a small customer base. How many platforms do you optimize for? <laughs> yeah, and that's a conversation we're having regularly with our clients: is do you want to have everything optimized all the time for every latest release? Or what's acceptable? 
And so we, we just have honest conversations with our clients, which is, you know, what do we feel comfortable? All right, so I, I'm going to throw out one of those maybe, I'm not devil's advocate thing, but yeah. uh, an issue is, all right, you, you're the agency, you're going to sell me your service, and of course you're good, but I'm the customer, let's imagine. Well, yeah. why, why are your technologists better than agency B or agency A? Because how, what, what's the question that I should be asking that's going to allow me to know that you've actually got the business, you've got the right people? Well, it, you know, it, it's, uh, it's a bit he says, she says, you know, at the end of the day, you know. I mean, um, what I know is that we've got, you know, we've got 30 technology back-end developers here in London. There are not many agents in London that have that many developers in-house. And what we've got are guys who are working, one of our key revenue streams is e-commerce. Now, because it's e-commerce, that means we have to have a pretty high level of technologists in here to keep up to date with what's going on. And also in terms of rigor and robustness, you know, we, we can't have just young kids who are kind of hackers just knocking out a couple of apps because that's what a lot of small digital agencies have. We have people that are used to building rigorous, robust, compliant systems. Now, at the end of the day, whether that makes it better than other people or not, I, I couldn't answer. Well, what we do know is that we have a level of rigor and robustness and sturdiness, which I think any brand wants, but particularly luxury brands, because they want to know they've got things, you know, which work, which are online, which, you know, someone can't hack into, which can't, you know, it's not going to collapse after two days, you know, because we have to build things to last. Well, so what I can say, uh, Steve, is that your website itself is, is quite a good flag bearer of yeah. creativity and innovation. So when you made the decision to invest, and and I don't know when the last time you upgraded your site was, to what extent is that really an important marketing fixture for you? And, and do you expect to be doing this every six months to show, you know, use it as a... As a... Uh, I wish we, yeah, I think you're right. Wait for, oh, showcase. So I think it's, um, you know, we, like many other agencies, sometimes it's, you know, it's the, the terrible story of the, um, the cobbler's children, yeah, you know. exactly. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we've got a list of things we'd like to do to our website, you know, which would take us forever, I guess. Our focus there is on the client business, and so our focus is on doing great work for the client. I, I hope that, you know, if you like the website, it's good. It, it represents a great deal of our work and the quality of our work, but we know there's a lot more we'd like to do with it and, would, you know, bring it up today. And so we're kind of limited, you know. At the end of the day, we're a service business, and our service is focused on clients and doing great work for clients and, you know, well, we've got more time to do more to our own website. Well, I mean, in all fairness, you know, I've seen a lot of sites and I like your site. So Thank that you. was actually, that was supposed to be a compliment. <laughs> um, so coming back to the, the notion of these luxury cars and personalization and luxury customers, we're going to talk data and insights. And as you were saying very rightly, you know, these, these, these customers are almost individuals. So, you know, you can't create buckets of insights. On top of that, they're maybe well-known and don't really care to have their data spread out. So they're, they're rather cagey about that. How do you go about managing the, that relationship with their customer? What are the kinds of insights you might provide in, in help making that a better relationship? Well, I think it's, it's predominantly trust. And you have to be very clear. These guys want to know that if they're giving some data to you, that you're going to be absolutely appropriate with it. 
uh, and what I mean appropriate is, is using it as you would, because as I said, it's a one-to-one -one relationship. So if you're in a one-to-one -one relationship, I wouldn't send you an email every day saying, hi, here's our latest deal. You know, so it goes to the appropriateness and it goes back to what I was saying about the inside. So if we are really saying these are important individuals that we're going to deal with, we have to think about that when we're creating the communication strategy. And that's where, you know, if you're, with a car, you know, if you're talking about cars, for instance, that's where you get the input from the uh, car, car sales guys. And equally, sometimes on that, what we've done is create communication programs, which will, although we build it and create it, we actually give it to the local guys to send out. And then they might actually change it so it actually feels as if it's come from them. So we'll create the strategy, we'll create the who, who it should be sent to and why, but actually it's kind of handed over for the local guy to send out. And again, that's also very true globally because you have different sorts of relationships in different markets. Um, so we try and make it appropriate. Um, and I, what I've seen is if you break the trust between the brand you know, and the consumer and your customer, you're, you're kind of dead. So you've got to really treat it easily. You have to be very careful about how you personalize it. If you're over-friendly, over right. for instance. Or showing too much information. You know, you know if, you, if you personalize it in some of the horrible Reader's Digest way, you know, putting the name in every three sentences, it's not going to work. You know, um, so you've got to be very appropriate. You've got to write it if it's an email as if it's something that you're, you know, you're writing to somebody now. Right, so the, you know, the quick answer... Things like getting titles right. Right. You know, in luxury markets, you know, you might be dealing with lords, ladies, barons, all sorts. You have to be extremely careful about getting the right way of talking to them. So, so I want to... Addressing them is a very basic thing, but it is incredibly important. Yeah. Well, we, we do a lot of shortcuts, right? And automation and... Yeah. So, talking about the customization, Steve, you, we were... Um, so, you were talking about how the Chinese love to have the, the personalized uh, car... Uh, Rolls-Royce uh, is proudly announcing that 95% of their cars last year were personalized, as in yeah. not just a monogram on the dashboard, but the, you know, the, the color of the leather was you know, Pontone 243 yeah. and so on and so forth. I'm surprised it's only 95%, seriously. But in my experience, it would be 100% in this market. Right. So, I, and then, and then, what what I liked about the Rolls program is that each individual has an ability in a walled garden space to track the construction of Steve Grout's car. Yeah. So, I, are there any other things that you've seen in this sort of walled garden space that is of interest and you know is is maybe showing a little bit more sparkle in terms of using digital to be more luxurious? Well, I think certainly you can, in terms of you know using digital space, you can. You know, once you've ordered the car, very easy to set up within that portal, so you can actually per yeah, keep personalising it. The danger is, of course, for manufacturers, you've got to stop it at some point because you've got to build the thing, <laughs> you know, without it being changed daily. But of course, the beauty of digital, and you know, you can connect the buyer to exactly what's happening on your car. So you have the video on the on the track as it's being built. You can have a direct contact with the guy on the on the line if you want. You know, so I think the challenge there, and I have seen manufacturers do that sort of thing, is 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 how much though does that actually get in the way of the actual production facility? Because you know, you, you know, these things take months to build, but if you stop the guy building it every ten minutes to interact, then it's going to be slower and slower. Yeah, so there's a balance there. But I do think, you know, I've talked about you can do very neat things getting the designers and senior guys 
getting onto a webcam or something and talking to the guy and saying, you know, let me update you on where your car is. You know, your car is at the minute, you know, one month into an eight-week build. You know, we put this on board. We've done that. This is what's happening. And you can create a you know, personal reaction, uh, a relationship with that. I think I've seen some of that happen work very well. Um, you know, and I think, you know, the digital design, so you can get into the Pantone, you can get into the colour thing, because you can pretty much personalise whatever colour you want. No, 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 stop, I don't want the 246, yeah, I want the 247. Know, <laughs> you know, but there are, you know, there are elements within that, and I think you can have some fun with that as well, yeah. if, if you get that right. Um, so I think that's, you know, that, that's one of those areas. All right. So um, in another area, uh, Steve, working in digital, you're, you're, you're inevitably having to work with the customer's uh, mindset as well. And I'm, I was wondering, and you may be evangelizing sometimes and teaching about new things and new UIs and all this. To what extent do you believe that being good at digital absolutely or should be uh, also requiring the company to be customer centric how do you how do you match those two things doing a great digital campaign and being as an organization customer centric uh, as a brand yeah I think I think we go hand in hand I mean I think um, I think there's a number of questions there actually in terms of digital I mean that, that's just you know, those are the, your those are your gaming chips now. Or total phrases, you cannot be in this game now without being extremely good digitally. People expect to be able to go online, you know, on their mobile, on their smartwatch now, tablet, desk, you know, whatever it is. That that's a given. That that's table stakes. You know, forget it unless you do that. I think then in terms of the uh, customization, I think was the the point you said. Um, I think it's become to be expected, and going back to your previous point about Amazon, when people are going on and just downloading, you know, a CD for £9.99, if they're doing that with the latest CD or track or whatever it is, they're coming out to buy a luxury handbag, pair of shoes, suit, watch, you know, car, you know, whatever it is. Again, the, the stakes are just wrapped up and up, and so they expect you to recognise it and feedback and personalise that experience as soon as they go online. And, and then the point is, I think, the other challenge is then, then when they go into the retailer, is how do you connect that then as well? So, you know, if they just spend £5,000 online with a, you know, and bought a handbag, they go into that retailer in Milan, they'd like to be recognised. That's the challenge for a lot of the brands right now, and, and not all of them cracked it. And, you know, because it creates a different connection in terms of data, uh, in terms of training of staff, um, you know, there's a lot of issues there. And of course, in the luxury market, these guys travel. You know, they're in Milan one week for a fashion show. They're on business in Shanghai. You know, and so you know, I just spent five thousand pounds with you in Shanghai. When I come to you and say, now I'm on the latest handbag or latest suit, and you've got my measurements. So, um, you, know, you measured me for a suit last week in Shanghai. Yeah. I'm, one here in I'm not going to do it again. Yeah. Um, last question, Steve. Talking about luxury, and uh, that's sort of my, my latest obsession, if you will, uh, and ongoing. Um, what about social media? Yeah. Do, do, who do you see doing a good job, and how would you construct a social media strategy for a luxury, whether it's an airline 
or a, a motor car company or fashion, whatever? I think it's, it's super difficult, actually. Um, again, I think whilst luxury um, customers use social media, of course, um, the issue is if you look at social media, again, everyone has access to it. So lots of people that follow the social, you know, media pages. Um, I worked with a, you know, a car manufacturer a few years ago who, who at that point did not want to go on social media. And the reason for that, they said, all they would have is students and, and children going online, and you know, like it. <laughs> yeah, likes, and they were saying we could not see any reason why to be on that, and because once we open, you know, you talked about opening Kimono, that's exactly what happened. Once you open, opened up. Then you've got to you've got to have people online pretty much all the time to actually respond to questions, you know, issues, problems, and you know, work with a, a, a non-luxury manufacturer. But the biggest problem they had once they went into social was people going online and saying, "Your guy serviced my car last week. You said it would take two days. It took a week. What the hell's going on? Tell me what's going on." Now all of a sudden you've got a whole load of people on that Facebook page hearing that you're crap at servicing cars. You've opened that, oh yeah, before that person would have got on the phone and, and just said, hey, why's, why's my car late? Exactly. Now, it's, you know, you've got 100,000 people saying that you can't service a car. And if that's global, that's a bigger issue as well. What? So I'm not sure I'll give you the answer to that, but yeah. I think you have to be extremely careful about the social strategy, how you use it and what you open it up to. Uh, because I think you, you do open up a whole load of issues and potential, you know, social terrorism. I think, mean, you know, if you've got somebody who wants to go after your brand, they can go after it. And the issue then, you have to try and manage that. That's, a, that's, that's another crisis. Really I mean, difficult. I, I've, I've been personally, I, I fly rather frequently on Air France, and so they recognize me as a good client. And when, so when I tweet them uh, on, uh, in an open manner, yeah. They they have evidently they flag me as a as a good customer. Uh, yeah. Same with Orange, and there's a immediacy to the response, yeah. and and maybe it's because I also have a certain following, but I I definitely I, I definitely appreciate that. And I'm wondering, do you see any brands that are doing a good job in your experience that are use, you know luxury brands that are actually using social in a good way? Um, I, I, to be honest, I want to highlight. Too many. I think most of them is still work in progress. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, you will have some particular transactions like an airline because they have to kind of monitor it because of you know, the, the type of product it is. I think a lot of more normal, and it's a service rather than a straight product. I think in terms of product, I think for many of them it's work in progress and they struggle to react in a timely manner. Mm -hmm. It's a staffing issue and a training issue. Um, and I think many of them have still got a lot of work to do there. I think it's one of the big challenges. So it's interesting, you said, actually, if you're a product, then it's it's harder than if you're a service. Well, I think it's a service, yeah. Well, in the airline business, you've got flights going 24-7. If you've got a problem, I, I suspect if you're delayed for an hour, you go on Twitter and complain. So Air France has to manage that pretty quickly and explain what's going on. If To be honest, they're probably on it already. As soon as there's a delay, they're, they're on Twitter saying we're delayed because of, you know, if you say, if you were to buy a luxury product, but then you know decide you get it at home and it's if it's there's a problem with it, yeah, that's not a service. It's not an ongoing service. So I think they're dealt with slightly differently. And I think you know brands that are selling products are probably not 
quite as up to speed as some of those services like an airline or service. I suspect. I mean, it's a generalisation, but I think that's true. Mm. And I think some of the social media teams probably struggle to react as quickly as they would to if you were online saying my 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 flight delay was going on. I suspect, or I've lost my bags. You know, that that's an of the moment thing. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think people expect a, a, an immediate response, and they have to because if not, you know, it, it trains massively. I think if someone going online and so I've got home and my my product, my pen, you know, my luxury pen, there's a problem with it. I think it's a different issue. All right, so Steve, we're going to call it the close because the, we well, I've enjoyed the conversation. I'll say, well, I, you know, it's, and I'll let me uh, talk a little bit more about you for one second so that. At least, um, you know, people understand. Because what I liked about your site and what is I got to understand you a little bit, and I've never worked with you, so that's, you know, so I can't say anything more about that. But what I do like is this notion of the cross-section between data technology and creativity. And I think your your site speaks for itself in that respect. So, you know, uh, when, when agencies go in there, there's definitely a need to help the customer, the client, your client, understand what the power is, and then make the choices. And maybe social media is not for everybody. No, no, I don't think it is. I think, I think it's, a, it's a channel. It's a, it can play a certain role. But I think, you know, you know, we used to laugh, maybe four or five years ago, we were frequently called to clients and said, create a Facebook page for us. And our response was, yeah, what's the problem you're trying to solve? Okay, yeah, give us the problem, and then we'll come back to you with a, a channel strategy, which might include Facebook or Twitter or whatever the social media, but tell us what's the challenge first, rather than having a Facebook page or a Twitter thing, because everyone else is doing it. And what we saw was that there's too much Me Too, and I think too many people fell into it because they just wanted to do it because everyone was doing it. You know, one of the one thing we often you know talk about is what you should do, what not not just what you can do. You know, you can do everything if you want, but you know, there's you know, what's the business challenge and what's your budget? There's a finite budget, and you need to focus your budget as a client onto trying to resolve and you know the, the challenges you have, the issues you have, or to connect with your your customers, engage them in a way that will be better for them. Not just doing stuff just because it's trendy or it seems to be the right thing to do, and that's one of the biggest challenges now. You know, there's a new channel every day, isn't it? Right, um, but it doesn't mean you have to use everyone. So, are you bullish on the, the Apple Watch? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I honestly don't know. I think it will get there. Let's face it. Apple don't fail too many times. No. Um, and so you it know, will think, be known. Yeah, you know. So um, I, don't, I think yeah, let's 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 see. Yeah, uh, so. You know, I think it will probably err on the side of success and failure. Yeah. I suspect. I mean, it's a good, good bet. So, uh, Steve, how can someone um, follow you or, or get in touch with you if they'd like to do that? Well, the main thing is uh, the best thing I think is go see us uh, on our website. It's tangentsnoble.com. Uh, that's probably the best way. And if they'd like to contact me directly, it's steve.grail at tangentsnoble.com. Um, you know. Please come see us. Send me an email. Um, that's probably the most direct way. All right. Well, beautiful. Many thanks, Steve. Thank you. Thanks, all. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes on themindset.com. That's mindset with a Y. Where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter at forward slash subscribe. If you like the show, please do rate it in iTunes. That really makes my day. Happy trails and enjoy Josh Sachs's Painted Fingers. Oh, fill me 
For your colors any different way To rid me of the gray And heal me With all your imperfections that you mention In your lack of self-security Oh, I wouldn't care about the art form As long as you Welcome, change agents, to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. 
You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts.